Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual double-barreled feature today, we'll hear from the journalist Ryan Grimm on the fight between railroad workers and their massively exploitative employers, a fight that was ended, at least for now, with a settlement imposed by Washington. And then the economist Sanjay Reddy will analyze another labor dispute, this one at the New School of Manhattan, a conversation that serves as a portal into a discussion of the political economy of universities today. First, Railroads. Congress recently imposed a settlement on a dispute between railroad workers and their bosses. The settlement is sometimes described as breaking a strike, but as our first guest, Ryan Grimm of The Intercept, will explain, there is never going to be a strike. Had the workers struck, the railroads could have sued for damages and would almost certainly have won. U.S. labor law is a multifaceted nightmare. Life in the railroad industry has become miserable for workers. Over the last several years, the big lines have been using a strategy called precision scheduled railroading, which is a fancy term for running trains that are as long as possible, some as long as five miles, staffed with as few workers as possible. Employment industry-wide is down about 30% over the last five years, and pay is down about 18% after inflation. That hasn't resulted in a productivity miracle, according to the official stats, but it has been great for railroad profits. And it's been hell on workers who, as anyone who's followed this dispute knows, aren't even entitled to paid sick days. Here to talk about what kind of organizing has been going on among railroad workers, the political landscape of the settlement, and possibilities for future action is Ryan Grimm, a reporter for The Intercept, who has a long and well-reported article on the topic on the site. We talk some about the PATCO strike, the 1981 walkout by the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Union. Ryan said the demand struck the public as unreasonable. The union thought their members were overworked, stressed, and underpaid. I didn't remember the details, but I just looked them up. Patco's demands included a 32-hour work week and a $10,000 raise, over 32000 in today's dollars, for a workforce that was earning between sixty and $160,000 in 2022 money. The government rejected it, and they struck in a legal act. Instead of working things out, Ronald Reagan fired them, which was unheard of at the time. I'm one of those people, Ryan mentions, that almost always support union demands reflexively, but his point that the broader public found them unreasonable, instead of finding them a model that we should all aspire to, that's probably true. Okay, here's Ryan Grimm. So let's go back a decade or so uh, where you begin the piece. A precision schedule railroading was new to the scene. Uh, they're hiring like crazy. So first of all, what was this practice and uh, how are the railroads uh, implementing it? Basically, what they're trying to do is keep the trains running as much as possible and keep them as long as possible. That was part of it. You now have trains that stretch more than five miles long. They are running them more often, running them longer, and then also running them with much fewer staff to the point where some of the unions are running a a two on a crew campaign to make sure that there are at least two. Like They're trying to push it below that, uh, which, which then becomes dangerous, not just for the workers on the train, but then for kids who are playing on the track or, or I don't think I need to explain to people how what the complications of that could be. And then all of the costs end up being externalized to other companies because these are all monopolies. You've got maybe six class one carriers around the country, but they are regional monopolies. So they, they can basically charge whatever they want to charge. And so there's only like one railroad that'll go from point A to point B, right? It's not like you can choose among them. Exactly. Exactly. And so because they have set up this brittle system, if things fall apart, it's the customers and the suppliers who are the ones that then pay the price. It's like, oh, your thing's not getting here till Thursday. Or, sorry, yeah, we can't ship that for another three days. Because they're a monopoly, there's nothing they can do about that. And, what's, and so they're able to keep their prices at that level, move theoretically more, but do it at a, at a much cheaper rate. And you've seen over the last five to six years, a a roughly 30 to 40% decline in staffing across the country. When I was talking to a lot of these workers and I would say, why were you able to put up such a bigger fight this time than in past contract negotiations? And some of it was the militant rank and file organizing that I wrote about it. And some of it was that just the conditions had changed. As Ross Gruder said to me, it's just a fundamentally different industry than it was even three years ago. And that's something that the railroad executives, but also the union boss 
bosses didn't quite recognize either because they're not riding the trains every day. And three years is fast, but the ground has really changed underneath them. And so it's, it is now just a fundamentally different industry and people are feel like they have v- very little left to lose at this point. I was looking at the productivity statistics for the industry. They're not terrific, but it has been great for railroad profits, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the stats you would expect to see from a locked-in monopoly who is slashing its costs. It's not necessarily becoming more productive because precision scheduled railroading isn't as precise as they say it is. But what it does do is it cuts your costs way down, but you can still charge, but you're not moving a whole lot more. Warren Buffett, who has something of a saintly reputation in liberal circles, is one of the big uh, beneficiaries of this. Right. Yes. I saw some some on the right saying Republican senators were such hypocrites here because here we are trying to become this pro-worker party and we now represent you know 50% or so of the working class in the United States, but all we feed them is, is culture war grievance. And when a woke liberal billionaire asks us to crush those workers, we side with the woke liberal billionaire. Those are very clean and fair shots at your own side. Good for you. Like the gap between what kind of Republican elites are saying about and to workers and what Republicans are doing, which is the same thing Republicans have been doing for 40 years, is growing wider and wider. And you're seeing honest Republicans, for lack of a better word, step in and say and point out that gap. This is an industry that once had a long history of extreme militancy, late 19th, early 20th century. The Railway Labor Act of 1926 changed all that. Tell us about that act. Right. That was brought in to basically bring peace between the railroads and and their workers after, like you said, roughly 50 years of titanic clashes, which the public does not want. It's tough for workers. And very often they would get locked out rather than go on strike because the railroad bosses knew that they controlled the media. They controlled the messaging around the strike or, or the lockout. So they would lock the workers out. All of a sudden you're not getting your letters, or you're not getting the different snake oil supplements that are flying around the country in the 1910s or whatever. And people are getting frustrated, you know, and also food and energy, you know, the basics of life are not moving. And because the railroad barons controlled the media, often literally owned the media, they would win the propaganda war and the strikes or the lockouts would result in, in workers getting less and less each time. In 1926, what they finally said is, okay, Congress can actually step in here. If you don't come up with a deal between the unions and the bosses, then we're going to set up a board. We're going to come up with a deal. We're going to send it to Congress and we're going to just enforce it, at which point a strike is illegal. If you wildcat strike after that, and if the railroad company can in any way tie the wildcat strike to the union, they can sue for damages. And you saw them saying today that you know if there was a strike, it would cost them $2 billion a day. And they're, they're happy to throw those numbers to a judge. And then the judge bankrupts the union. The 26 Act also included a union shop clause, basically, which gave legal recognition to the unions, which meant that in some ways the unions had less incentive to kind of keep organizing their workers because the, they were kind of legally locked in. And because they knew Congress was going to step in and strike a deal, Nobody had any incentives to do anything more than just kind of go through the paces, go through the motions. And that's basically where we've been for the last hundred years. There are, what, like a dozen unions uh, involved in, in this current uh, this current battle. Like, One of them represents 300 people. Right. The Teamsters represent two of the biggest unions. Other major internationals represent some of the others. They're rivals in a lot of ways. They are constantly blaming each other for selling each other out in different contract negotiations. Uh, and because they work in different things, they have the same kind of rivalries that you would have find in a restaurant between folks in the back of the house and the waiters or whatever. One of the main unions I wrote about this week was BMWED, which is it's called Maintenance of Way. The track men, they're the people that fix the, fix the tracks. The other unions call them maintenance in the way because they just see them as just the reason that they're sitting on the track for three hours and can't move. It's because these guys are just being lazy and won't get out of their way. <laughs> They sound like the New York Post with their fellow yes, union. Right, right, yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. So if the New York Post were smart and they wanted to do anti-union stuff, they'd go and drive uh, wedges in between the cracks between these different craft unions, which is what the bosses do. And which is why you have people who say, like, if you're ever going to take on the railroads, UPS, Amazon, all of this, you have to do it as an industrial union. Like this craft union stuff is just not up to 
the challenge in a global capital world. About 10 years ago or so, the uh, the maintenance of way folks started doing some organizing. Now, this is a very hard industry to organize because workers are so dispersed and they're constantly moving all over the place. How'd they get aw- awakened and, and what did they do? After the Tea Party wave and then again after Republicans took the Senate in 2014, they started to stare down the possibility of a fairly radical Republican Party taking full control of the government in 2016, which in fact they did. The maintenance of way boss at the time, Freddie Simpson, was unusual among his peers in that he was pretty confident in his own uh, leadership and said, you know what, if we're going to save ourselves, we need to mobilize and organize our rank and file. Like, And it might sound unusual to people who don't follow organized labor to say, well, why would a union need to organize its membership. They're already in a union, but they'd been in a union since the 1880s. And it was a union in name only. I heard this from several workers that they showed up for work and tried to find a contract. And to find a contract, they would look for like a union representative or somebody in the union. They would ask all the other workers, how do I get in touch with a union? And like nobody knew. And that's just one guy, Tom, he finally finds a guy who'd been in the mechanics union in his previous job. And they were like determined to figure out where is this union. So they finally find this this union lodge, a local, and they show up for a meeting and they just witnessed this like knockdown drag out fight over sweatshirts. Because at the last meeting, the like 10 guys who had shown up had all voted on a motion that everybody who showed up for that meeting got a free sweatshirt. And then word got out so that at at the next meeting, more people showed up and were furious that why do these folks get sweatshirts? (laughs) We don't get sweatshirts. And Tom said, he turned to the guy, he's like, is this what union membership is? And Tom's like, no, I'm telling you, this is not, this is not it. And so this is like 2010, 2011, 2012, when it's still more abundant. And after 2014, they start this, what they call a CAT program, which is modeled after contract action team is what you build during contract negotiations to like mobilize your workers. So that it was a riff on that, but they called it a communications action team where it was going to be more permanent. They hired this radical and militant organizer named Kerry Dahl to come in and just crisscross the country. And they gave him a budget to hire other organizers and meeting six, 10, 15 workers at a spot over months and months and months, teaching them, training them up on how to be activists within the union leading into the next contract negotiations. And in the process, ended up radicalizing a good number of workers. That was project was eventually shuttered significantly because precision scheduled railroading was slashing staff so much that dues were just absolutely plummeting. You know, if you lose 30% of your workers, 30% of your dues go away. Uh, And so they shuttered that program, but the remnants of it continue in the sense that one, the like rank and file are now mobilized. And two, they were able to break down a lot of the barriers between uh, the different federations, the different locals and the, and the locals and the leadership. So the little things like they can now blast text messages out to everybody. They can send emails out to everybody and tell them this bill is happening or this new thing in the negotiations happened. And, and believe it or not, like that represents a significant step forward in their organizing capacity than they, than they had before. And it was these workers that then took the lead in Congress after Biden screwed them by uh, sending it to Congress, although there's some debate about how much he screwed them, because some of the workers all, all also were like, if you don't get this done now, then we're going to get an even worse deal when Kevin McCarthy is running the House of Representatives. And so people don't understand, I think, how much workers' backs are up against the wall constantly, and they're and they're just living a life of trying to like stave off losses endlessly. I'm speaking with the journalist, Ryan Grimm. What about the role of the Teamsters? Um, the Teamsters are parents of two of the unions out of these dozen. There's been, of course, a long-running TDU insurgency. Uh, and then Sean O'Brien, new president of the union who deposed Hoffa Jr. What kind of role do they play? Two of the unions that they oversee are are among the biggest, including the BMWED. So yeah, Sean O'Brien, like you said, uh, previously had been something of an ally of, of the Hoffa machine, and but in 2017 had a huge falling out uh, because he ended up supporting the TDU-backed candidate in basically a fight that he was in with Hoffa. Hoffa had named Sean O'Brien to be the lead negotiator in their previous contract and then and then kicked Sean off of that team, which then pushed Sean into being basically full-on allied with the TDU. And then, like you said, then he won the election and ousted the Hoffa machine. He was sworn in, I think, in March 2022, and the railroads came to him and said, can you get us out of mediation and into a presidential emergency board? Their calculation was, 
your buddies with Marty Walsh because he's Sean O'Brien's from Boston. Uh, Marty Walsh, labor secretary. Uh, Biden claims to be the biggest pro-labor president in history. Let's move this quickly while Democrats are still in power uh, and get it to a presidential board and then we'll get the best deal that we possibly can. And Biden even allowed the unions to pick the majority of the three-person board. And I, I write in the story that the BMWD was like, awesome. Let's get that guy on Twitter, Robert Reich, former labor secretary, had put him on the board or progressive economists or social scientists. Like they wanted to break the mold. Instead, the unions ended up, you know, it's just suggesting arbitrators, a uh, very standard move. Arbitrators, what they do is they split the baby because the arbitrator wants to keep getting hired to do future arbitrations. And to do that, you just have to, you know, stay in everybody's good graces. So Sean O'Brien burned a bunch of capital with Biden and, and Walsh to get it to this place. They, they got some of the things they wanted and they're not as unhappy as people might think. It went down, but it went down by a pretty narrow margin. But then Biden just sent it over to Congress. He had the capacity to push it further and unions hoped that he would. Uh, he didn't. Instead, he just sent it over to Congress. And so they had basically put all of their eggs in Biden's basket. And once Biden kind of screwed them over, that was it. Yeah, it looked like the most pro-labor president in modern history, as people have been calling him, and I think he wants to call himself that, put the kibosh in a strike. Uh, so how do you read that? Well, they always knew that he was going to put the kibosh on a strike. Like all sides were aware of that. The question was, under what terms is he going to put the kibosh on a strike? They wanted it to be on their terms, add the sick days and basically grant most of the concessions that we're asking for through the PEB. And if he had done that, then across the board, they're fine with a strike being squashed because they also feel like the railroads themselves are the ones who are obstinate. And so if you can force a deal on the railroads that they don't want, they, they consider that to be a win. Well, you know, it looked like it could have been a great PR moment because, you know, here's these railroads making a bundle of money and the workers can't get sick days. This is not like Bolshevism. <laughs> this is like a pretty reasonable uh, set of demands. Uh, they could have played that differently. Right. You would have covered the air traffic controllers. Uh, you would remember that. I was like six or something when that happened. Oh, I, I remember it well, yeah. When I go back and read like what they were demanding, you're like, okay, this is kind of crazy. Some of what they were asking for was wild. They had, I think, endorsed Reagan, right? They had, yeah. Yeah. And so they felt like they were in a really good position. And their demands, when confronted with the light of day, the public light of day, public was like, hmm, none of this sounds reasonable. And you're going to shut the airlines down over this. And so when Reagan wiped them out, they weren't prepared for that. They didn't have a plan to win the win the PR battle. Whereas the railroaders are asking for sick days in the wake of a pandemic. It was almost like night and day. Like with, with the air traffic controllers, you support the unions out of solidarity and out of principle. Like no matter what they're asking for, you say, this is what they're asking for. You support them. But that's a, that's a small portion of the public. A lot of the public, I think, looked at their demands and was like, hmm. Not so sure about that. Is, is that your memory of God? I just I, I don't remember those details. I just remember the uh, the president being carried away in uh, chains. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> that was Reagan sending a message that we're in a new era now, and boy, it really worked. When you're looking to send a message that you're in a new era, you're trying to find a scapegoat that is where the public's going to be with you. If you're trying to crack down on press freedom, you're going to go after Julian Assange, not the New York Times. But that's not what this was this time. Like with the railroaders in sick days. If Democrats actually cared about this, I think they could have gotten them the sick days. I mean, there's no question they could have gotten them the sick days. And I think it, it has to come down to a question of where did Biden actually side? And I think he just didn't want to do it. A lot of these Democrats are just ideologically aligned with the railroads and just and they look at this precision scheduled railroading stuff and they're like, hmm, that's pretty nice. That sounds like something, you know, the Clinton era Democrats would have gone for. You know, we thought that Biden represented the departure, but uh, maybe there's still some DLC left in the guy. I think there's definitely is DLC left in the guy because he also, there was reporting that back in the fall when he learned that there were no sick days, he got on a conference call with these railroad CEOs and, and screamed at them about it. And as a result, they added one little personal day. It shows the structural power too of all this because you not only do you have a president who's calling himself the most pro-labor ever, he even at least momentarily was emotionally invested in the issue. I think they might have been surprised by the backlash. I, I think it's out, kind of insane that they would be surprised by the backlash. But as a result, the railroaders are, are still hopeful that they're going to be able to use this moment to extract some, some wins by executive order. 
AOC and the squad got roasted for voting to impose. Um, how do you, what's your interpretation of what they did? Their vote was cast like kind of in coordination with the unions. Like so, the and at first when I reported that, people would say, "Well, the, it's the union leadership, and the union leadership's corrupt, and they're just toadies for the Democratic Party." It was actually this kind of left-driven rank and file caucus that was pushing the strategy. And that's what the contacts that they had were with the squad. And that's why they asked the squad to pull. This, this. was in the maintenance of way. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And in order to get the sick day vote, the only way that they were able to do that is if they also voted for the underlying TA. So and now Rashida Tlaib and a few others, I think Chewy Garcia ended up casting a no vote on imposing the original TA, but then a yes vote if you impose it with the sick days. And so some people said, well, everybody should have just done what Rashida Tlaib did, just from a kind of tactical game theory approach or whatever. If, if you try to get too clever with that stuff and your actual goal is to pass both out so that you can continue the fight in the Senate, like assume that that's your actual goal. But you also want to save face by not voting for the first part of it. If too many of you start doing that on the floor, Republicans then have their own agency and can say, oh, so they're going to they're vote this down. We can now stop the sick day vote from happening. And so then they all vote no. And now the, the original TA goes down. You would think, oh, well, great. Now the workers can strike. Except no, that's not what would happen next. What would happen next is Nancy Pelosi says, all right, the deal was that there's going to be two votes. This passes, then you get the seven-day sick day vote. This didn't pass. Therefore, I'm putting the original contract back on the floor, and there's going to be no sick day vote. And at that point, you get 100 Republicans who vote for it, send it over, and, and you lost your fight. So if the actual goal is to do what the, the unions and the, and the unionized workers want you to do, which is to get the sick day vote through the House and over to the Senate, you, you don't want to play around too much. You want to just get it get it through. And I think that the, the hostility is, is interesting because it represents kind of a new way of thinking about politics. Like back in like the 60s, the idea – that you'd have all of these atomized individualistic members of Congress thinking through their own politics and voting in the way that is most beneficial to them would have been a bit of a betrayal of a kind of left block, a progressive block of members. Like the idea would be that you'd have, who was that big, what what were they called? The democratic something, whatever that, you know, there was that giant coordinating liberal organization and they would set the strategy. They'd say, here's what we're going to do. And we want our members of Congress who are aligned with us to do this. And you want kind of a left membership-based force on the outside that can dictate to members of Congress how they ought to be voting on behalf of that membership rather than just doing your own thing and doing what you think is best. Because do it, like That's great. Ni- that's nice. But that's not a project. That's not, a, that's not an organized collective project. But I think that after 40 years or whatever of neoliberalism, a, a lot of people on the left have lost the idea to think conceptually about what an organized project of solidarity looks like. And, and they, instead, they, they just want people to you know, act on, on their ideals all the time and how they see, how they see fit. What's your read on, on how that went through and what it says? My gut instinct is to say, just don't impose a settlement on workers. It's very anti-labor and defer to the unions. The fact that all this is happening in a political arena, that the labor relations are really a function of Congress and the president and uh, a bureaucracy, this is not good for the working class. Right. Yeah. But the defer to the unions is where it gets complicated. Right. They were criticized for, um, as you said yourself, deferring to a corrupt leadership. Everyone assumes the uh, the rank and file itself is uh, a bastion of militancy. Is that true in this case? No. And, you know, it's a small caucus of rank and file. There's two kind of radical caucuses, one railroad workers united and then the BMWED rank and file united. They certainly don't represent 100% of the rank and file. In fact, the rank and file are overwhelmingly kind of Trump supporting Republicans, which is another thing that, you know, I think people don't want to think about when you're conceptualizing what this struggle is about. And the one guy uh, had, had mentioned to me, He's like, what's really interesting here is that he's like, you know, most of my coworkers are conservatives and they were like, wow, I was really shocked to see these, that it was the progressives that were fighting for us and the Republicans who were selling us out and, and particularly highlighting people like Jamal Bowman. It, even it broke through on CNN. You even had a kind of normie worker on there thanking, I, f- I forget what he called him. He got the name slightly wrong, but he was thanking Jamal Bowman for the work he had done. To me, that's actually what progressives need to do to like 
say, no, we're with the working class. We're going to have this fight and we're going to show you through that fight, you know, whose side you're on. A lot of these workers just didn't see it as breaking a strike or like stopping them from striking because they've known that because of this law that's been in place almost a hundred years, it wasn't going to be a strike. So there's no strike to break. Like they don't like the railway labor act, but they know that it exists. So what's next? Is this a fight over for now or um, are there additional um, battles to be fought? They had a rally yesterday with Bernie and Bowman and a bunch of other uh, House Democrats where they're calling on the White House to use uh, executive authority, either through Department of Labor, Department of Transportation to give sick days. And also there are a number of other concessions that they're still pushing for. One reason they're focusing on Mayor Pete is that his jurisdiction over kind of fatigue and health and safety, they think is going to be more solid in court than just a straight up executive order from Biden over seven sick days. Mayor Pete has just missed opportunity after opportunity as transportation secretary. Um, for a guy who wants to be president, he, he sure doesn't show any signs of having any interest in kind of doing anything that would make people inspired by him. It's, it's quite something to watch. Well, this is the McKinsey and him coming out. Yes, it really is. It's like, do you want to be a McKinsey guy or do you want to be president? Like, I don't think you can have both. I was Ryan Grimm, a reporter at The Intercept. You can find his article on the topic at theintercept.com. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Train Round the Bend by the Velvet Underground. Different kind of train, but the song speaks to me. Next, another labor dispute. This is the New School for Social Research, a small university in Manhattan, with a long distinguished history as a bastion of progressive thought. Some 90% of the instruction is handled by part-time adjunct faculty who are paid badly and have crappy benefits with no security. The university claimed it had no money, but after a few weeks of strike and facing a prospect of students transferring out, decided that it did have the money, and agreed to a half-decent contract. My next guest, Sanjay Reddy, teaches economics at the New School and has been putting out financial analyses in support of the strikers. Here he is to explain some of the details at his institution, as well as the larger issues affecting today's neoliberal university. Sanjay Reddy. It's really hard to talk about the financial statements of universities in general or the New School because it seems like their financial statements are not models of transparency. Is that a, a correct conclusion? Most universities don't release very much information to the university community about their budgets and their finances. And so uh, the best way to find out something, what little one can find out about them, is very often to look at the public records, which they are required to file with various agencies, such as the Internal Revenue Service or U.S. Department of Education. Putting all of those pieces together, one can get something of a picture of the situation in the university. But of course, a lot of that information is also quite lagged. So to cut a long story short, what they disclose about themselves is often very limited, as you suggest. Now, I keep seeing claims, and I've heard this about the New School, but I hear this also about universities more generally, that administrative expenses uh, have grown far more than those for instructional staff. I find it hard to find absolute numbers, like what is the relative percentage of spending on administration versus teaching? What does that look like? Do you have any sense of that? How has that changed over time? The proportion of administrative expenses has definitely increased over time. And the proportion of expenditure on what is officially designated as instruction in what universities report to the U.S. Department of Education has also fallen over time. An example is the new school where I teach. And just over the last decade, the proportion spent on instruction has fallen from about 
38.5% to 33.5%. That's a little bit lag because the latest data we have is around 2019-20. But um, that's a 5.5 percentage point, roughly 5 percentage point at least, decrease in uh, around a decade. That's a big change over a small period of time. But actually, it's been happening for decades. And this type of pattern is uh, visible across the U.S. higher education spectrum. And it's been a reason that people have been asking, uh, you know, why is it happening? Is it, uh, uh, for example, more regulatory mandates? That's the right-wing view about it, uh, which which there, there may be some truth to. Or is it the padding and bloating of salaries and emoluments and um, uh, also the sheer number of administrators uh, in universities as they have tried to conform more and more to a corporate pattern rather than those of traditional higher education? Your president is certainly very highly paid, uh, especially for a small, not not small, but not tiny. But it's not a, it's you know, it's not Harvard, it's not University of Michigan. The university president is very highly paid, more than the president of Harvard, which is a, a larger, more complicated institution to run. Though their task is simplified by having lots of money to play with. But uh, yeah, why, what about the president's salary? Well, that's a very good example, indeed. I pointed out that per unit of endowment, per million dollars of endowment, per thousand students or uh, indeed per million dollars of expenditure, our president has been paid far more handsomely than the president of Harvard University. And I I made that comparison uh, just because it's so clear, would be so clear to anybody that Harvard and the New School are very different kinds of institutions. Now, when I made that point, the university administration in a formal response to me during this recent part-time faculty strike triumphantly informed me and uh, the readers of their so-called response, the the previous university president, David Van Zandt, who's the only one for for whom we actually have that number, uh, was not even paid in the top 50, was not even one of the top 50 best paid university presidents of private institutions in America. And uh, indeed, they were right. When I did my own count, it was 53rd. But as I wrote in my response to their response, maybe it's 55th. My counting isn't ideal. Always exactly perfect. (laughs) But whether it's 53rd, 54th, or 55th, uh, I think the point that uh, he's not in the top 50 is neither here nor there. That that there are lots of other university presidents who also have bloated salaries is, I think, part of the point that we would want to make, that this is a larger trend and trajectory in American higher education, not necessarily confined to our institution. And it bespeaks the tendency to view universities as corporations whose uh, presidents or CEOs, as they also sometimes understand themselves nowadays. They are increasingly using that term, right, CEO? Exactly. And that they should be paid the same way or in a similar way to private sector analogs. And then I presume that uh, the um, salaries of those just below the president in rank are, you know, would have to be reasonably comparable given the normal structures of salaries. If you look at the Next best paid officials who are typically in most institutions, including our own, the provost, chief operating officer or financial officer in our case, I think those two things go together, but also a lot of other vice presidents for this and that, of whom there are quite a number. Uh, typically, their salaries are in the half a million dollar range. The provost, in the latest public records we had, was being paid around $700,000. The university president was being paid somewhere in the range of $1.2 million, if I recall. And then you had these VPs being paid anywhere between four hundred fifty and $600,000. And if you add them all up, even in a tiny institution like ours, it added up to somewhere around ten to $12 million dollars. And of course, the university top administration's defense would be, but that's only two and a half or three percent of our total expenditure. So it does; it's not; it wouldn't make very much difference one way or another what we are paid. And I think that response really misses the point because, of course, when the institution is very straightened in other ways, every dollar does matter. But also, it's a symbolic offense to people who are being asked to do without very large uh, number of people in different classes to pay oneself extremely handsomely. And of course, they have their rationales and justifications. I'm not saying that they don't. But uh, whether those are persuasive is exactly the question we're raising. I suspect that they think that they're just more important than everyone else, so they deserve it. Well, uh, as you know, uh, Doug, because you've followed executive compensation in the private sector quite extensively, 
uh, they would argue typically that this is what they have to pay to hire people who have certain capabilities, talents, as they like to put it, or yeah, skills. They're always talking about attracting and retaining talent, as if that, you know, I, how scarce is this talent they're always talking about? Indeed. One has to exactly wonder about that, especially because the kind of skills which are involved are not necessarily of an earth-shaking nature. You know, one doesn't actually want one's university financial officer to be trading in exotic derivatives. One would rather they be prudent and, yes. and rather careful. Well, my alma mater, Yale, uh, broke new ground on, on running the endowment. Uh, with uh, That's true. But in the case of, of Yale and Harvard and others, such very wealthy institutions, they have entire offices, as you know, for managing their endowment. And those are really structured almost like private sector entities with salaries that are comparable, arguably, though they would again argue that they're paid much less than their private sector counterparts. But, uh, uh, you know, that's definitely not the situation we're in. We have a puny endowment and uh, in comparative terms. And I think that's true of a lot of institutions outside of that elite circle. The New School is a pretty small endowment. It was, what, $300, $400 million endowment institution that's largely tuition-driven, right? Very much tuition-driven. The endowment's a little bit more than that, but not so much more. I think $450 million range. They have a big property portfolio, though the exact value of that is somewhat unknown in, in New York City. And uh, very much tuition-driven because of um, the fact that you know there's, there's a high cost base in New York City, and uh, there's really no other source of revenue. The New School has sometimes been the highest or the almost highest uh, tuition private institution in the United States for undergraduate education. And it's close to $80,000 a year now, right? Yes, exactly. That's inclusive of, of course, uh, room and board. Uh, but if you strip that out, it's a little bit less. But it's, it's uh, uh, and of course, that doesn't account for the possibility of a scholarship assistance, which many students receive. Though from the new school, it's usually uh, only a small percentage of, uh, of their actual cost. So students are very often going into debt, sometimes very sizable debts. And um, there is a perception, I think with good reason, that American middle-class families cannot continue to afford uh, the tuition increases that have been happening. And so there's a need to do something else, find another model that raising tuition at the pace that has taken place over the last decades um, is uh, going to just make higher education unaffordable for American families. Okay, so during the the, um, the heat of the pandemic crisis, the university did not want to dip very deeply into the endowment to uh, get itself over these rough times. So they did a lot of cutting. I've just from watching Yale over the years, which has a very large endowment, it seems even Yale is very reluctant to dip into the endowment. It makes you wonder what these endowments are for. They remind me of Marx's uh, phrase, you know, accumulate, accumulate, this is Moses and the prophets. That seems to be what it's all about. It seems like accumulating this vast hoard, which is never actually to be used. That's an extremely important point. What is the correct amount of endowment spending for there to be? The so-called endowment policy, uh, what should it be? This is something which I think can be debated, is debated, but typically universities take an incredibly conservative position on the this matter and they uh, really treat it as an executive decision that shouldn't be questioned at all by anybody in the university community. The new school has been spending about 4% roughly of its endowment every year. During the pandemic, because there was a steep decrease in revenue that was projected, the university was authorized by its board of trustees to extract a much larger proportion than usual from its endowment. But in the end, it chose not to do that because it wanted to preserve the endowment over meeting the current needs of people, even in an emergency situation where adjunct faculty in particular, the part-time faculty in the new school, were teaching much less, given much less opportunity to teach, therefore having very severe cuts in income. Even the uh, full-time faculty salaries were cut. They, they, they had a cut imposed on them, on us. Uh, we had our retirement contributions frozen, not provided at all, and so forth. So there were a number of different uh, steps that were taken that were quite dramatic, but the university endowment was really hardly touched. And the university, in its uh, latest response to, to my criticisms, uh, declared triumphantly that the endowment had increased as a result of its not being touched. And so that was, in retrospect, a good decision. Well, I'm not so sure about that because endowments are there for particular purposes. They're in part to smooth unusual emergency difficulties that may arise. That is one of the appropriate uses of an endowment. It shouldn't happen every year, but here and there, there may be a need for that. 
I'm speaking with the economist Sanjay Reddy. The university's claim uh, throughout the negotiations was that they just couldn't afford to uh, improve pay and benefits for uh, the part-time or adjunct faculty. Apparently, since they've agreed to something, spare the details for now, but they've agreed to something, so they evidently found some money. But what about that general claim that they just were too broke to pay uh, anything reasonable? That's a great point. My colleague, Paulo Dos Santos, who's also been involved with me in trying to bring financial transparency to the institution, estimated that based on the university's own statements, about $12 million more per year would be needed to meet the part-time faculty union's demands, which is roughly 3% of the university's budget. Which is about what you're saying with the executive pay accounts for. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And by the way, they spent $20 million a year roughly on so-called professional services, services of consultants of doubtful worth, uh, lawyers, presumably, and accountants, and so on. Where that goes, we don't quite know. They've made enormous real estate expenditures, not just the so-called university center, which was a massive expenditure involving hundreds of millions of dollars at the previous New School for Social Research building at 14th Street and 5th Avenue in New York City. But also, uh, just last year, $125 million on buying a student residence that was previously being leased. So one can question the timing of those decisions, in part because of the claims of straightened circumstances that the new school is making, and of course, the complete lack of transparency in decision-making about such matters. I would add that every year, the financial statement mentions that there are some related party transactions involving entities connected to trustees. We don't know the details of those, and maybe it's completely legitimate, as they claim. Uh, But nevertheless, it just points to the lack of scrutiny of all of these very sizable Uh, seemingly discretionary choices at the same time that they would claim that uh, paying adjuncts part-time faculty extremely poorly is somehow a financial necessity. What we've been talking about, about the new school, is very typical of uh, what you and others have called the neoliberal university. So let's talk about the more general model. The private universities and a lot of the elite state universities are increasingly coming to resemble these. But, you know, we have a whole range of uh, economic models from the IVs, these very old institutions with lots and lots of money, but are nominally nonprofit to, you know, for-profit universities uh, like uh, DeVry or uh, University of Phoenix. This idea of a neoliberal university contains a vast universe, but uh, how would you define uh, this uh, concept of the neoliberal university? Thanks for mentioning that, Doug. Indeed, there is this incredibly various landscape of higher education in the United States and also in other countries. And so um, it's really hard to give one description that fits all of them. But I think what one thing that we can say is that there's a greater and greater emphasis on the financial, financial considerations in the management of universities. So for example, part of the neoliberal viewpoint of top leadership is that universities are engaged in a competition for customers, namely the students. Those customers are seeking value or a a value for money proposition, which should be as favorable as possible, judged how in terms of economic impact, first and foremost, what kind of jobs they get and at what salaries. And then internally within the institution, the concept of a cost center and a profit center is applied, not necessarily using those words, but that's what it very often amounts to. The notion that there are some activities or some divisions which are costing more than they're bringing in and others where the opposite is true, with the suggestion being that uh, the profit center should be built up, the cost center should be cut down. And of course, all of these judgments are based on very often opaque accounting, which only the top administration really has access to. Uh, But I would say the dominance of these financial considerations or a financial language is something relatively new. It's emerged in the last decades, and it wasn't as central to the self-concept or the self-understanding of universities in the past, where there was greater lip service, at least, to the value of education. Now, of course, I don't want to exaggerate the difference. Torsten Veblen, who was one of the founders of the New School, and I'm sure you are also, like me, uh, have enjoyed reading in the past, wrote, as you know, a very famous book called The Higher Learning in America uh, in the early 20th century. And it's absolutely a hilarious book which is still worth reading because a lot of his criticisms of universities and colleges then as being uh, run by trustees who had very little appreciation for the value of education and who were very vulgarly business-oriented and uh, output and uh, finances-oriented were in charge of the university. And and, uh, I think um, 
to some extent, that's exactly what we're seeing now, except with the difference, perhaps, that the dominant language in the entire economy and society uh, also supports this shift in universities um, to a larger extent than it did in the past. I saw a presentation you did, a, a series of slides, uh, and uh, one of them, um, you, you asked the question, who owns the university? Who runs it? I've spent a lot of time studying the governance of private corporations, uh, and these issues are not necessarily very well settled in that sphere. But you know, at least corporations are supposed to be run on the principles of profit maximization and pleasing the shareholders, and with somewhat more transparency than you see in the university sector. But you know, what about this question of who runs the university? Who owns it? Who's it for? It's a great question. Indeed, there are, as you say, some private sector for-profit universities uh, like University of Phoenix or DeVry, which uh, have shareholders. And in that case, in some sense, the uh, answer is clear, or at least it's no less unclear than it is for any other private corporation with shareholders, even though, as you point out, some of these debates arise in that setting too. But with most universities, there is at least nominally some type of broader not-for-profit set of objectives having to do with what is typically reduced to research and teaching, but it could include um, other things too, such as um, benefits for the community of various kinds that are um, articulated in other ways. And therefore, for a university to be private is not to settle the question of how it should be managed. And although there may be certain legal prerogatives that trustees have, just as with the for-profit corporation, the Rights, role, and responsibilities of diverse stakeholders is something that uh, can be a little bit ambiguous, but it's definitely the case that they all have some claims that they could potentially make. To take a very simple example of the kind of issue that's um, very often uh, just sidestepped, right? what does it mean to put teaching at the center of one's mission? Should one have very many more students? Should one expand the number of students that one teaches, or should one teach the students that one has in as responsible a way as possible, which might involve, for instance, having fewer instructors but paying them better. There are many choices of that kind where it's not obvious uh, from the first how they should be answered. And I think university trustees and top management uh, arrogate to themselves these decisions, which are really decisions for the community about the values that we have and what importance to give to these different values uh, when as we necessarily must, we have to trade them off to some degree, but recognizing that they're all values we have some reason to have. Talking about this, I'm reminded of this comment uh, from Etienne Balabar, the political philosopher, who said that the Western bourgeoisie no longer has a project of civilization. They just deal in cost-benefit analyses. That seems to be uh, very visible in, in, in uh, issues like this. Yes, I think that uh, there's often a language of necessity, as there was recently in the New School strike. And as you pointed out, what was apparently impossible suddenly became possible when the university agreed to the part-time faculty demands in the case of our own institution. And they showed themselves willing to inflict a very considerable cost, including a financial cost on the institution in order to do that. So the idea that they were safeguarding the finances of the institution was given the lie by their very reckless effort to do so, proclaimed effort at least to do so. Similarly, when one looks across the board and asks, uh, you know, what's really being safeguarded or promoted here? Of course, there's a discourse of finances. There's a claim of financial prudence or stewardship. Uh, but I think there's also a lot of, in effect, self-dealing by top leaderships and uh, sometimes trustees that's involved. I'm not in this case pointing necessarily to my own institution, but to others. A really flagrant, interesting recent episode is that involving Liberty University which you might have followed, where Jerry Falwell Jr. recently had to leave his position as president because he was uh, literally caught, uh, well, what can one say, uh, in flagrante. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's almost, almost literally, indeed. There were financial and other improprieties uh, on a grand scale so, and, 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 and misuse of, of university resources uh, centrally. So, uh, you know, these kinds of situations are, are not uncommon. It's interesting that the IRS and other government agencies are really hands-off, it seems, when it comes to these things. So it requires something of a rebellion from within the community in order for any action to be 
to be taken. And again, I'm not claiming our institution is the same as those, but when you look across when, across the horizon, scan the different institutions that there are, you certainly see some examples uh, of this sort. Finally, there's a lot of disillusionment in the academic world these days. <laughs> lots and lots of it, from what it seems. A lot of faculty and students are there in universities uh, because, to use the old-fashioned language, they love learning. Uh, and the neoliberal university can exploit this. They can pay people very badly and treat them like crap because uh, people are there for non-economic reasons. That's a great point. You know, in some of the um, Marxian literature in recent decades, there's been the concept of self-exploitation that's been used. People will allow themselves to be paid less than what the reproduction of labor power requires in order to uh, do something that, as you put it, they love. And that's certainly the case with uh, many of part-time faculty and adjunct faculty in the United States. The Chronicle of Higher Education and others have had a number of articles on poverty line or below poverty line uh, wages and existences of adjunct faculty, many of whom are on state-provided benefits as a way to survive, experiencing food insecurity, and so on. Uh, our own institution proudly sent around, it, it seemed to me proudly, um, a notice a few years ago about how it was establishing a food bank in the new school. And I, I thought that was a point of shame. I mean, very good that there should be a food bank if people need it, but uh, it was, certainly wasn't presented that way. The fact that there is uh, hunger and insecurity even among uh, students and faculty is disturbing. But uh, why that's possible is surely uh, the reason that you mention uh, in part, I think, especially in the humanities, that's been extremely clear that once uh, somebody does a PhD, they, it's not quite that they may, they're, they're unemployable in other ways, but uh, this may be one of the few options that, uh, that really uses the training that they have, uh, but it involves a very precarious and uh, borderline existence. Adjuncts on public benefits. I'm reminded how Walmart used to, do they still, tell workers how they can apply for food stamps and Medicaid because their pay was so bad. I was Sanjay Reddy, Associate Professor of Economics at the New School in Manhattan. You can find his writing on the situation at ready to read that's R-E-D-D-Y, to read.com. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of Conservative Hell from Dry Cleaning's album Stump Work, which was released in October. It's a fun song, though I'm not sure what it has to do with either conservatism or hell. Till next week, bye. Conservative hell